Hello, this is Micah Zenko, and thank you for joining me today in another fascinating podcast. Our discussion today is with Dara K. Cohen. Dara is assistant professor at the Kennedy School of Government at Harvard University, where she researches and teaches on international relations, international security, civil wars, gender and conflict. She is also a member of the board at the Belfer Center for Science and International Affairs, a home where I toiled for several years as a graduate student. Uh, we're here primarily to talk about her excellent new book that just came out with Cornell University Press called Rape During Civil War. This is uh, among, I would say, the most impressive academic works I've ever read. It combines uh, statistical work with field research in Sierra Leone, Timor Lestat, and El Salvador, uh, where there were interviews with victims and perpetrators, uh, uh, in a, a great deal of them. But for an academic work, it is also highly readable and policy relevant. It is only 200 pages long, which is a wonderful thing. And it has specific policy recommendations for both how the United States government and foreign governments and militaries should think about uh, this atrocity used in conflict settings. To learn more about her academic and policy work, just Google Dara K. Cohen, and the first two listings that appear will have everything you need to know. Dara, thank you for joining us today. Thank you so much for inviting me. Well, first, just let's jump into the topic, because it's a topic that scares off a lot of people. People come into it with a lot of sort of charged uh, baggage for thinking about uh, such a, a horrible atrocity. How did you get into the topic, and how did you develop your central finding which challenges some of the conventional wisdom and myths about wartime rape. Yeah. Um, well, I had a very long-standing personal interest in issues of violence against women um, that had manifested itself in a variety of ways, both big ways and small ways, kind of starting during my college years. So I had worked as a rape crisis counselor. Um, I had volunteered in a domestic violence shelter. Um, and there was a short period of my time of my life where I, I thought I wanted to be a lawyer. And so um, I interned for a summer during college at the Domestic Violence Sexual Assault Unit of the Rhode Island Attorney General's Office. I went, I went to college um, at Brown in Providence, Rhode Island. And then I decided eventually to go and get my PhD. I ended up at Stanford. And I think I started my PhD at Stanford in 2003, which was just at the time when Jim Fearon and David Layton had published their right. incredibly famous seminal article on civil wars. So it was a really exciting time to be at Stanford studying with um, these amazing people who were experts on civil war. Uh, so that was really inspiring. And then my second year in graduate school, Jeremy Weinstein started as a faculty member there. And I just remember hearing about his research for the first time where he described doing a lot of traveling, doing interviews with ex-combatants, and I just thought, that is exactly what I want to do. So I knew that I wanted to do something in that style and, and in terms of writing a dissertation. And the, the sort of Academic research at that time, especially the research focused on civilian victimization in wartime, was really in large part focused on killing, on lethal violence. Right. And one of the things that we know about killing is that the people who die during wartime as a direct result of wartime violence are men, are military-age men, quote-unquote. And so there were lots of open questions about what 
actually happens to women during wartime? And even more broadly than that, what happens during wartime to civilians when we're thinking about forms of violence that aren't lethal? So there was sort of a nice opportunity to combine my, my sort of abiding personal interest in violence against women and sexual violence with this kind of space in the academic literature to start thinking more systematically about other forms of violence and other kinds of populations that are affected by violence. So I kind of proposed this idea of writing a dissertation focused on on rape um, or other forms of sexual violence to Jim Fearon, to Jeremy Weinstein. And I was quite nervous about, you know, broaching this topic. And they were just incredibly encouraging, really, from our very first meeting about this. And Jeremy eventually connected me with Elizabeth Wood, um, who's a professor at Yale, who's just been an amazing mentor. So all three of them have been just incredibly influential and sort of helped me along the way when it came to sort of choosing this topic and, and writing this book. And, and let me um, just ask you just briefly about going back to that second, third year of grad school, when you're thinking about a topic that is coherent, that you can collect data on, um, that is a struggle that many of us go through, and we're not sure what the methodological approach is. How did you settle upon the, the, the cross-use of both the data set that um, uh, David and Jim had developed on Civil War, plus field research, uh, uh, how, did you, how did you come to the approach to, to study the topic? Part of that is just a reflection of my training. Um, Stanford, at, the, at least at the time, I'm not sure what they're doing now, was really kind of encouraging students to focus on something they called the tripartite method, where you combine kind of um, a formalization of the logic of an argument with cross-national empirical data and um, kind of micro-level interview subnational kinds of data. And so that was part of it. I mean, another reason is just that there really, when at the time when I started this project, there was no cross-national data on rape during wartime. And right. so even trying to choose the, the sorts of places where I might go and do field work wasn't going to be possible until I, um, there existed a data set where I could sort of see the universe of cases and how they varied. And then based on that list, uh, I wanted to choose some cases that had experienced, you know, some cases of civil war that had experienced mass rape and some cases that hadn't. And so I was able to sort of narrow that down. I eventually ended up looking at Sierra Leone and East Timor or Timor-Leste as two cases that are that were coded and are widely understood to be mass rape wars, and El Salvador, which had much more limited reports of rape. Um, and the interesting variation in East Timor and Sierra Leone is that the majority of the rape in Sierra Leone was perpetrated by the rebel group, right. the RUF, um, whereas in East Timor it was perpetrated by the Indonesian military or their, the militias that they supported. And so at the time, I mean, this is just a couple of years after UN Security Council Resolution 1325. This is an issue that people start caring about in a serious way. But as you mentioned, there's not a grounding in it. There's not uh, data sets. There's not academic research. And there's a lot of perceptions about, about the topic, which is that um, rape in wartime might be a consequence of gender inequality within a country. Uh, it might be the sort of primitive uh, atavistic behaviors of individuals pressed into combat. But the conclusion you come to is uh, quite different than this, that this is about essentially military effectiveness, unit cohesion, and com combatant socialization. Yes. Um, I do want to just offer one 
slight corrective, which is I, I, it's not the case that there was no academic research on this topic. Right, um, right, right. There's been many, many years of research, particularly by feminist scholars, who did, uh, I think, a, a lot of amazing work when it came to um, uh, there was a sort of an explosion in interest after the the Bosnian War, and as we got to know about episodes of mass rape in that conflict. Uh, but in terms of the sort of mainstream political science literature, no, there really wasn't the kind of uh, data sets that were that we sort of have developed over time that are kind of easily downloadable from the internet, and we can study sort of variation in, in intensity of wars and that kind of thing. So in, in terms of the finding, yes, there are very powerful conventional wisdoms around why we see rape in wartime. And so my first case that I did fieldwork in was Sierra Leone. And this is a case that is widely recognized to be a mass rape war. And this is really one of the earliest kind of moments in my sort of fieldwork. Um, I had just developed my dissertation prospectus. I wasn't quite sure what I wanted to, to argue yet. I had some kind of ideas floating in my head. But there is this very powerful conventional wisdom. And particularly about Sierra Leone, there's sort of widespread it's often held up as something of the poster child of the case where rape was used as a weapon of war. Right. right. Um, and so I fully expected, as I started doing interviews with ex-combatants in Sierra Leone, that I would hear all sorts of things that reinforce this narrative, that I might hear things like former fighters describing receiving orders to rape, or when I spoke to commanders, maybe, you know, maybe they would themselves talk about giving orders, but maybe they would talk about their other peers um, you know, other commander peers that had given orders, or maybe they would describe something around the strategic purpose of rape and, and how, what a powerful weapon it could be in that regard. Um, or, and I also spoke to villagers, and I was expecting them to say something like uh, they had overheard orders to rape, or maybe certain kinds of victims had been targeted, and that would suggest that there was a sort of ordering, a logic to the, to the a strategic logic to the rape. And then I, I was just incredibly surprised that I really heard almost none of these things. So I had to kind of go back to the drawing board to start thinking much more carefully about what could be going on here. I just left that first fieldwork trip just incredibly confused right. um, because nothing seemed to be kind of um, going in, a, in accordance to the conventional wisdom. At the same time, I became really fascinated with this sort of stylized fact about rape in wartime, which is that the majority of the reported rape in wartime is gang rape. And so I started doing a lot of thinking about that. It's in part surprising because gang rape is actually not very common during periods of peacetime. And that's true in the United States. It's true in other countries. Maybe something like 5 or 10% of reported rapes in the United States are gang rapes or multiple perpetrator rapes. So the majority, like in a lot of other countries, the majority of the rape in Sierra Leone was gang rape. And so I thought this maybe could be a puzzle that, um, which ends up being one of the kind of central puzzles of the book, that I could sort of use to explore the kind of underlying logic of rape. So I started reading a lot of criminological research on gang rape, anthropological research about um, rape and other forms of violence in gangs and prisons on college campuses. Um, I think some of these contexts are obviously extremely different from an armed group, but in other ways, some of these contexts are, are similar. Right? Um, these are places where young men or sort of majority young men have a lot of anxiety over their place in the particular social order of that institution. And so some of the background conditions seemed similar enough where I could develop an argument about um, how gang rape takes place 
based on findings from these other contexts and think about how those might apply to the wartime context. And tell, and tell us, what is that central argument that is sort of counterintuitive to some of the conventionalism that was out there? So the, the central argument in the book is that rape is, rape sort of solves a problem for armed groups that recruit through abduction. And that's true for both rebel groups and also for, for states, for militaries that recruit their fighters through, through kidnapping. And these kinds of armed groups often are comprised of people who don't know each other and have no basis for trusting one another. Right. And um, they may be likely to sort of fall apart, right? And so they need something to kind of help the members of the group sort of bond together. And so I argue that group rape or participation in gang rape um, can at least, is, is one form of violence, one form of group violence that can kind of help resolve this problem of low cohesion. And so, again, I draw on some of the criminological research on gang rape to make the argument that in interviews with perpetrators of gang rape, we often hear that co-perpetrating acts of gang rape kind of increases esteem between the perpetrators of the rape. And there's some kind of group dynamic, group process that's going on in the background. And gang rape sort of increases these bonds of of friendship. And so one of the kind of observable implications of that argument that I explore in the book is that armed groups that recruit by force um, should be more likely to be um, reported perpetrators of rape, which is in fact what we see in, in the cross-national portion of the book. And one of the interesting things that you point out, which is in your research and a lot of other people who do interviews with perpetrators, is that they know what they're doing is wrong. They don't believe that they get a free pass because it's wartime, and after the fact, they have a rationale and justification. But what did you hear from perpetrators? So part of my interest in talking to perpetrators of rape stems from the fact that most of what we know about wartime rape is extrapolated from, from victims and from witnesses. And so we often kind of read a strategy in between the lines of people's reports of, of what they saw or what happened to them. But it's relatively rare that scholars kind of ask the perpetrators or at least members of the perpetrating group directly about what the purpose of rape was or how rape was perceived by the members of their armed group. And so one of the what, one of the one of my tasks, my sort of goals in conducting interviews was both to see if in fact rape seemed to have this social bonding benefit that I argue that it does, but also to see if there was evidence of other arguments that exist in the literature as well. So one thing that I was looking for in the interviews is whether there were, when, when ex-combatants were talking about rape and other forms of sexual violence, whether they sort of described, often they, just, they described witnessing the act rather than co-perpetrating it, mm-hmm. um, but whether they would describe something that they found to be sort of disgusting or repulsive, or if there was any evidence that participating in these atrocities kind of created social bonds. Um, and what I found is that it was relatively rare that people sort of described something other than kind of these socially bonding behaviors, that um, there's this outlined a great in, in detail in the book, but um, ex-combatants would describe things like uh, laughing 
you know, in the aftermath of the rape or sort of recalling participating in episodes of mass rape with their co-perpetrators and sort of thinking it was uh, funny or thinking it was a way of describing it was a way of sort of demonstrating that they were kind of a real rebel, that they were part of the group now, and they were to be taken seriously as kind of a a co-member of the armed group of which they were now a part. Right. And to ask the great political science question, now you had to use some data and you use the updated uh, Civil War data set. You look at 91 major civil wars between 1980 and 2012. And what you find is interesting is that there's significant variation across the different conflicts. Some have no reported rapes, some have tremendous numbers, some involve both state military forces, others just insurgents, but state militaries seem to be more likely to do it exclusively. Did you expect to find such variation and, and, what, and what sort of explained it? One of the first steps of this project was actually to show that there is, in fact, variation, right? From a social science perspective, this is incredibly important because if rape was just ubiquitous, if it was essentially a constant that, can, that entirely co-varies with the occurrence of war, it's not a very interesting question or puzzle from a social science perspective. So one of the first tasks was really to show that there was some interesting sources of variation. And there, I should say that there are dozens of ways of demonstrating this. A few of them are highlighted in the book, and I was actually just emailing with one of my colleagues the other day who was using my data to kind of show that rape is, she's really interested in symmetric, non-conventional civil wars. And so one of the things that she was hoping to show is that rape is more likely in symmetric, non-conventional civil wars, which she actually shows. But in, in the book, I look at temporal variation. So one of the kind of concerns of some of the advocates and activists is that rape is actually getting more common during wartime in more recent years. And and others will say that it's not that it's getting more common, it's just that we are better at measuring it, we're paying attention to it. But, you know, one of the things I am able to show in the book is that it is in fact true that at least the source that I use for this book, which is the State Department Human Rights Country Reports, do describe rape in more dire terms and more frequently in more recent years than they did in earlier years. So I, I stay a little bit agnostic in this debate about whether it's because we're paying more attention or not, but at least the data that I collected does show that there does seem to be a sort of increase in over time. There's also really interesting regional variation. I think it's kind of common to say that rape is maybe most likely in sub-Saharan Africa, but rape is reported all around the world. It's not limited to any one particular region. Wartime rape is more likely in sub-Saharan Africa, but wars are also more common in sub-Saharan Africa. So looking at a percentage of wars with mass rape, Sub-Saharan Africa is actually not all that different from another, a number of other global regions. And lastly, I think one of the really interesting sources of variation that you've already mentioned is by the actor type. So it seems that state actors are more likely to be reported as perpetrators of rape than are rebel groups. And among the reports of states being perpetrators of rape, the vast majority of those are about rape against detainees. And so, you know, this could suggest something about the sources that we use to think about questions of human rights violations, the State Department, and also other sources that are commonly used in quantitative studies of human rights, like Amnesty International and Human Rights Watch, might be more focused on state repression than they are on forms of violence by non-state actors. But it also could very easily be the case that states are simply more likely to use 
rape and other forms of sexual violence as part of their repertoire of torture against mm. the detainees. So I think these are all really interesting questions that, uh, you know, someone else hopefully will write a dissertation on in the future. There's so many ways of kind of looking at variation across space and time. It must be a great feeling when somebody takes a data set you build and they employ it in a different way. <laughs> yes, it's, it is actually, it's, it's great. It's a, it's a lot of work to build a data set. So it's a really, it is a really nice feeling when other people find it useful for their work as well. That's great. And I mean, so I mean, you're talking about using State Department uh, sources, which gets to the issue that this has tremendous policy implication, your book, Rape During Civil War. You had a great um, op-ed with Professor Wood from Yale University and the New York Times last year, How to Counter Rape During War. I mean, you're at a public policy school, so you must have to uh, address policy recommendations either for the U.S. military, for the U.N. Department of Peacekeeping Operations, for foreign militaries. What are your sort of core recommendations that you put forth? Um, I think that's a really important question. And the last chapter of the book focuses on policy implications. But one thing I, I wanted to say before I talk specifically about the policy implications is that the kind of common story that we have about rape in wartime, that rape is kind of ordered by a commander from the top down, mm. this kind of conventional narrative, I think is in part seductive because it suggests a fairly simple policy solution, right. which is find these kind of commanders and punish them and also hope that punishing today's commanders will deter tomorrow's commanders. And I end up writing both in this op-ed and also in, in the book about why that is kind of a, a bit of a flawed logic. But I think the, the, the other side of that coin is that you know, easy solutions, unfortunately, don't really follow from my arguments. So one of the right. things I struggle with is how to not just have a very pessimistic conclusion to my talks to policy audiences, which is that, well, there's not that much we can do about this. I don't, I don't think that's true, but it's not as simple as just focusing on accountability and prosecution, which is, for better or worse, where most of the policy focus is these days when it comes to rape and wartime. So what I ended up arguing in the New York Times op-ed, what we ended up arguing was that first, we sort of make a plea for more research. <laughs> it's a very right. sort of academic kind of plea. But first and foremost, that I think one of, the, one of the sort of main arguments that comes out of the book is that if we really want to understand the basis of rape and wartime, we really need to be focusing on the level of the armed group itself that it's not enough to say, it's, it's the wrong question, essentially, to ask, you know, why did Sierra Leone have a lot of rape, but not El Salvador? Right. Um, instead, it, a, more, a much more interesting question, and I think a question with much more sort of power in terms of policy implications, is to look within this, the Sierra Leone civil war and to notice that although there were five or six different armed groups active over the course of the civil war, only one of them committed the vast, vast majority of the rape. So, so I think drilling down to the level of the armed group and really then understanding the specific traits of armed groups and things like their morals and laws, their recruitment practices, how they discipline their soldiers, how they pay their soldiers, whether they have an overarching ideology. All of these things might help us understand and predict whether and how groups commit mass violence, including things like rape. In terms of more specific sort of micro-level implications, I think a piece of, of sort of good news that follows from this observation that states are more likely than non-state actors to commit rape is that we know from political science research that 
simply naming and shaming countries that are committing atrocities might be effective, right? Right. Countries are more likely to care about their international reputation than perhaps at least some kinds of rebel groups. And so pointing out the problem and and engaging in campaigns of naming and shaming could potentially be effective. Other recommendations we make are to make foreign aid and particularly weapons transfers to armed groups conditional on their human rights record, and also be willing to swiftly withdraw those things if armed groups are credibly reported to be committing acts of, of mass rape. And then we do also, you know, in some ways agree with some of the the current kinds of policy interventions, including doing things like trying to make rape more costly from the perspective of the command. Right. So even if commanders aren't ordering rape, they're tolerating it. And they do that in part because it's not all that costly for them to tolerate it. So what are some ideas? We've, Elizabeth Wood and I tried to brainstorm some ideas in this New York Times op-ed about ways to make just the toleration of rape more costly from the perspective of the command. So doing things like imposing sanctions or travel bans on particular leaders who are, are in the command of, of armed groups that are known to be perpetrators of rape. And and where do you come down on deterring? Because there's this debate right now about whether do ICC prosecutions deter future atrocities with uh, Hiram Joe and Beth Simmons article, I think, in the current issue or recent issue of the International Organization. Uh, Is it worth doing for the purposes of deterrence or for justice for victims? Um, What do you think you get from prosecuting individuals both who conduct the activities and potential future perpetrators? Yes, this is a very heated debate, both amongst scholars and policymakers. And so I am hesitant to put all of the sort of policy eggs, all of the focus into this idea of deterrence um, and, and using prosecution as a deterrent, in part because trials are limited in scope. They you know, often are just a, a few, a small handful of very high-level people. They are extremely costly. Uh, one of my colleagues estimated that the cost of each guilty verdict in the ICTR and the ICTY was something like $35 million. Wow. Um, and, I, you know, the last sort of concern I have is that when, we, when scholars have actually asked victims and survivors of rape, what their top priorities are, it's relatively rare that they will list accountability prosecution of their perpetrators amongst the the top things they'd like to focus on. And I actually wonder if their answers would change if the kind of dollar amount per guilty verdict were actually made more explicit. So I'm very hesitant to advocate for using prosecutions as a deterrent. Um, for for all of those reasons. Now, I, I do have some colleagues that have pushed back and said that holding people responsible for engaging in atrocities has really important sort of demonstration effects, that it's sort of intolerable to commit these kinds of these forms of violence, and that the international community should clearly signal that, even if we're not able to demonstrate sort of a direct deterrent effect. You know, I think that there's something to be said for for that as well. But I probably would advocate for not spending those kinds of dollars on prosecution and rather focusing more on, on direct services for people who have been affected by rape and sexual violence. Well, so I guess two more questions. And the first one gets to the, I, I think you sort of addressed it with your, with your very policy relevant answers, which is, you know, what do you think 
it should be the role for political science and policy debates because outside of public policy schools, there's rarely an incentive for uh, junior faculty and even tenure faculty to engage in some of these debates. But you might be a little more biased being at the Kennedy School. I mean, just broadly, do you think political scientists should be more directly involved or is that not necessarily their role? I would love to see political scientists be more directly involved. And I think you're right, I am biased by the fact that I'm in a policy school. And, and, and in particular, in my policy school, where we're really strongly encouraged to um, interact with non-academics about our research. And so a kind of rule of thumb that, that junior faculty are even encouraged to do is for every kind of academic piece of writing that we produce to do at least one thing that would be intended for a non-academic audience. So maybe That's that would great. be giving a talk or writing an op-ed or a policy brief or something like that. But I think actually to kind of answer your question more broadly, I think the conventional wisdom, at least I hope, the conventional wisdom is sort of shifting over time. And even my friends who are not in policy schools, my political science friends who are in departments, there, there seems to be a kind of growing interest in talking about your research in a more accessible way. And I think now it's, it's even it's easier than it ever was before. So outlets like the Monkey Cage at the Washington Post have yeah. really lowered the cost of, um, of writing for a non-academic audience. So it's, it's, it's a very smooth, sort of easy process if you do want to write about some forthcoming work or some new findings, or if you have older findings that bear on a, on a sort of current policy moment or event. So I see a lot of my friends who even aren't in policy schools, even my sort of junior faculty colleagues, who seem willing and excited about doing that. So I, I think the, my, my hope is that that kind of older conventional wisdom about how there's sort of a, a very big divide between, you know, doing social science in the academy and kind of stepping over into the policy world. I think that it's much grayer now. I think there's much more fluidity. That's great. And, and if nothing else, at least not, I mean, it used to be the perception was you'd be punished for doing so. And that seems to have at least fallen away. Yes, I think so. I mean, there's still the case that if you do too much of it, particularly absent a really strong research record, I think that would be discouraged even in a policy school setting. But just, just um, you know, complementing your sort of core research by doing some engagement with non-academic audiences, I think, is, is largely encouraged. That's great. And, and final question, you know, we ask everybody is, you know, if you could go back in time to speak to the younger version of you, or you must get uh, asked to speak to a lot of young graduate students or even upper undergraduates who are in political science, IR, or security studies, you know, what advice do you give to them either how to progress in the field or how to find topics? What do you, what do you let them know? Well, in terms of, I often get asked by my master's students at the Kennedy School about pursuing a PhD, right? People are curious about it. And so one of the things that I try to emphasize to them is that the process of getting a PhD is just such a long road. Um, and that it's, it's really tried, it's really cliche to say this, but I say it to everyone I talk to, that it's you know, a marathon and not a sprint. And that being successful in graduate school is really at least as much about jumping through the right hoops at the right time and being committed to jumping through those hoops, doing like the hard labor to get you into this place to jump through those hoops as success is due to be, you know, being a smart person or being a creative person. So sort of knowing that about yourself and, and whether you're able to kind of focus on things for the very long term, even when they get really boring and hard, yes. is, is an important thing to know about yourself. 
secondly, I, especially with my kind of master's students who are considering getting a PhD, I often really push them to ask whether a PhD is necessary for the kind of thing that they see themselves doing. And so a PhD is necessary to be a university professor, but it may not be necessary for other kinds of non-academic careers that my students are considering. So I really um, encourage them to think carefully about what it is they want to do. I think there's a tendency, particularly for non-academics, people are thinking about becoming academic, to have a kind of fantasy about what an academic lifestyle is. So I try to encourage people... <laughs> there's a lifestyle? Are... I didn't know that. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> I try to encourage those students to, to actually talk to some assistant professors at various stages of being an assistant professor, especially talk to people that have jobs at the places that they'd like to work and ask them if they're happy, ask them what their days look like, what their weekends look like, what their summers look like. There's really a lot of sacrifice involved, and often that's very kind of hidden labor. So I encourage people to kind of get a, a true picture of what the life actually involves. I had also two quick thoughts just about choosing a dissertation topic, because that's another yeah. thing I'm often asked about, sort of a different stage in the process. And I thought I would just share two things that senior colleagues had mentioned to me at different points in my, my own process. The first a senior colleague once told me to choose my dissertation topic carefully, because you will be with your dissertation. <laughs> for an average of about 10 years, which actually did turn out to be the case for me. I started my dissertation in 2006. My book came out in 2016, so it was literally wow. a 10-year process for me. And this person said, you know, choose your dissertation wisely because you'll be with your dissertation for longer than the average marriage in the United States. So it's, <laughs> <laughs> it's more important than choosing your marital partner in some ways. Um, a second a senior colleague who was was talking to me about my work at one point, and um, so one of the pieces of advice I give is to really choose a topic that is utterly fascinating to you without, I think, trying to be too savvy about the market and what people's yes. perceptions are of what the market wants at any one point in time. And one of my senior colleagues once told me that my file really stood out to him because he was certain that no one had ever told me that I should study rape as a, as a topic in order to position myself to get a job at a top research university. So he thought that that spoke well of my passion for this topic. Um, and so I think that's one of the things I really try to pass along to people as well, is that choosing a risky topic can sometimes really pay off, particularly if you care a lot about it and sort of do it well. So my response to whenever people ask me if they should get a dissertation is always, if you could be published in one journal, what would it be? And if they don't have a good answer, they probably don't know the field. <laughs> and then, and then I, I, I was just thinking of you're trying to guess the market uh, concept when picking a dissertation topic. There's an article it's just out in either JPR or JCR, which was by Jake Shapiro and somebody else, which looked at all of the armed conflict literature since 9-11. And one third of it related to counterinsurgency. In every political science, security studies, IR, either uh, journal or presentations and academic conferences. He said it was like a third of it was COIN. And you remember how big a deal COIN was starting in you know, the start of the Iraq war for the next seven to 10 years. And now uh, COIN is not a relevant uh, policy research issue. So if you had really invested your, yourself in that space, you might have missed it. So pick something you love rather than something you think will be a big deal in five, 10 years. Yes. That's great advice. I'll have to check out that article. So please join me in thanking again uh, Dara K. Cohen. Go out and buy her excellent new book, Rape During Civil War, with Cornell University Press. It's available at Cornell University Press. It's available at Amazon. It is one of the most important social science works on a 
tough policy challenge that I've ever read. Uh, Dara, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much. I really appreciate the invitation again.